Pod and Prejudice is going live again, this time at the Ripped Bodice in Brooklyn, New York. This is going to be part of a festival celebrating fanfic, fandom, and forbidden pleasure, a romance festival being put on by Fish Market Theater Company. Some genres are relegated to quote-unquote non-literary status, living as guilty pleasures, frivolous, and derivative. And of course, across the board, most of these works are written by women. So this year, we are shamelessly toasting lady literature, fan fiction, smut, and everything in between with play readings, podcast shows, and a bunch of other surprises. So join us March 7th to 10th for all sorts of fun things, and you can head on over to romfest2024.my.canva.site. That's romfest, R-O-M-F-E-S-T, 2024.my.canva.site to see everything that's happening that weekend and buy tickets to all of the events as well as our live show. Plus, we heard you. A lot of you asked for the show to be live streamed and we are going to be live streaming the show for $12. So head on over to the link in our show notes and get those tickets either live stream or in person. But if you're going to come in person, get your tickets early because we only have a limited number of seats and we can't wait to see you there. And now enjoy this week's episode covering the first half of the 1996 Emma starring Kate Beckinsale with our guest Vanessa Zoltan. This is Becca. This is Molly. We're here to talk about Jane Austen. We are here specifically to talk about Emma! 1996 starring Kate Beckinsale, the second movie to come out in 1996 based on this book. Yes. And a film in quotation marks here. Listeners, if you're new here, I, Becca, have read many Jane Austen novels over the course of my life and watched many adaptations. And I, Molly, am doing that for the first time through this podcast. If you want to hear Molly read through Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility for the first time, you can listen to seasons one and two of this podcast respectively. But that is not what we're doing here today. No, today we are talking about Emma 1996. We are joined today. Emma 1996. Kate Beckinsale. You Kate have Beckinsale, to Kate Beckinsale, sorry. Not Gwen. Not Gwen. <laughs> not Gwyneth. And we are also not joined by Kate Beckinsale. We are joined by Vanessa Zoltan from Not Sorry Productions, from Hot and Bothered, from Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Hello. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me back, guys. I love chatting with you all. We're so excited to have you back yes. to talk about this made-for-TV movie. I'm sorry that I jumped in even before I was introduced, but it's just wild to me. The 90s were so Jane Austen film adaptation obsessed. And it is fascinating that there were two Emma adaptations in 1996. It's just, it's really interesting. And if you even like reach like a year or two before or after, I don't remember exactly when, but Clueless is also an Emma adaptation yes. and it's the same time period. It's it's a renaissance. It's also like on the heels of like Emma Thompson's Sense and Sensibility, yeah. uh, Colin Firth, Pride and Prejudice. Yeah. This, this was the era where everyone was like, we just want to like watch Jane Austen come to life either on the BBC or on our our movie screens and cinema. <laughs> and Andrew Davies is doing a lot of God's work here. Yeah, he's doing the most. I think it's interesting that Clueless came out before these. That It came out in 1995, right? The year of me being born. Um, <laughs> that's how I remember that. And I think of this movie and the Gwyneth Paltrow movie as being kind of like older films, but they actually, they are riding on the coattails of Clueless. Like they are trying to catch whatever Clueless captured so well. And in my opinion, not doing a great job of it. Well, before we get into the movie, I will just say really quickly, I actually remember the marketing campaign around the Gwyneth Paltrow movie being, if you liked Clueless, you'll love Emma. And so like they were really trying to gun for that Clueless audience and be like, look, it's Clueless, but with Empire Waist dresses. Wait. Before we go any further, I haven't talked about this on the podcast yet because it was a secret at the time and it's not now because it is opening in London, but Katie Tunstall has written the music for Clueless the Musical by Amy Heckerling. Like Amy Heckerling wrote the book and I was at Girls Just Want a Weekend where I got my three week long COVID and Katie Tunstall gets up on the stage and she's like, so I've written a musical. And um, 
do you all want to hear the song Clueless from Clueless? And I, it was my birthday. I lost my mind. Can't believe she wrote you that for your birthday. I know. I was like, this is a personal gift for me. Yeah. And it is amazing. And I just, I need to get to London to see it. But I, I really do believe that it's going to come to Broadway. So I feel hopeful. But yeah, I just had to talk about that. It's going to be amazing. Yeah. Wild that it's opening in England. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, I think. <laughs> That's true. I think because uh, KT Tunstall is Scottish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It's just always so funny what British things open here in America. It's just interesting. Yeah. I'm from Los Angeles, so I obviously think it should open in the San Fernando Valley where I'm from. Yes. Mm. It is just, it is important to me to say that Clueless did come out the same year as the Colin Firth BBC adaptation. And yes. so, right, like, there is this, like, juggernaut year Mm-hmm. And in a very typical 90s fashion where two studios either get the same idea or steal the same idea from each other, right? It's like the famous one being Armageddon and Deep Impact, right? Where like two mm. movies by different studios come out at the same time. This is obviously not two movies, um, the same movies, but it's just fascinating how like few ideas there were in the 90s. Absolutely. And I think there must have just been a real hunger in the air for this kind of content. Yeah. And here we are all these years later, still talking about this sort of little golden era of Austin content creation. It's interesting to think what must have been going on in feminism at the time that we wanted this sort of like twee, intelligent, manic pixie dream girl. You know, like there's something interesting Mm -hmm. that's going on culturally that this is what we were craving. But God bless, and I'm so glad we all were, because I am still craving it 30 years later. Exactly. Like, a few years of just, like, a lot of production of just what has been comfort watching for the last few decades for many, many people. Yeah, millions, I think it is safe to say. Yeah. So, Vanessa, let's uh, take a little step back from Jane Austen for a second to talk about you. Why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about your plethora of work in the podcasting community? So I am the co-host of three podcasts. One is called Harry Potter and the Sacred Text, where we treat the Harry Potter books as sacred. One is called The Real Question. Um, I'm trained as a chaplain, as an atheist chaplain. So we I talk to people and do sort of chaplaincy sessions on the theme of whether or not they should quit things. But most relevantly in my like baby is Hot and Bothered, where we talk about romance novels. And so last season, we talked about Pride and Prejudice in depth for a year and a half and it was incredible and we are launching our new season um valentine's day and that will be about rom-coms and we're spending the first (gasps) 10 episodes closely analyzing the 2003 classic how to lose a guy in 10 days oh my god and just learning about how films are constructed and what a wild movie that is. It is a wild movie, one that I profoundly enjoy watching no matter what, every time. It's like you find it on TNT and you can't help but watch the whole thing and yet like feel like you need a shower after. It's really interesting. That is precisely correct. (laughs) I cannot wait to listen to your coverage. It's candy corn, right? Like you can't Mm. help but keep eating it. And then afterwards you're like, why does my stomach hurt? (laughs) Because of Matthew McConaughey's behavior through the entire movie. Yes. Uh, (laughs) Anyway, going back to Pride and Prejudice and our girl Jane Austen, we have our returning guest questions and they have a little tweak this time. So uh, first question is, what is your current relationship to Jane Austen? How is she feeling to you like today? So I have recently reread all six novels and Lady Susan, like in the last year and a half. So she and I are really in the throes of a love affair. I like, I am passionately feeling inadequate in the face of her genius. I am 41, the age she was when she passed away. And I'm like, do you know what I didn't do? Reinvent the narrative voice. (laughs) I have not done that in my 41 years on earth. And I just, the the novels in conversation with each other really just like blow my mind. And I've, yeah, I could go on and on about it forever. So I, I would say that I'm in the worship phase of my relationship with Jane Austen. And we're doing a Northanger Abbey pilgrimage. That is how (gasps) obsessed I currently am. We are going to Bath in August to treat Northanger Abbey as sacred for a week because, man, I flippin' love Northanger Abbey, man. It is like a Me Too novel. And Henry Tilney is definitely the best Austen hero. He is 
Lizzie Bennett in pants. And I just, I, it is such a good book and I think it's underappreciated. So yeah, I'm like deep in my reverence. <laughs> you caught me at a great Austin moment in my life. Amazing. Oh, this is so fantastic. First of all, holding yourself to the Austin standard by 41 is quite I don't. I don't. I don't. It's like arrogant to even compare myself. I just being her age. I remember feeling this at 38 when I was the age that Charlotte Bronte died. I was just like, I feel young. You know, I like I do. I feel like I have a lot of my life ahead of me. And just thinking about these like geniuses who we lost so young, just sort of. It's weird. It's just weird to be that age. Yeah. I'm so sorry. This is a side tangent, but I relate to this from like the I've been on a new music kick and I've been I've always been like a sad girl music kind of person. Sure. And I've been getting back into my sad girl feelings and listening to a lot of sad girl music. But all the songs are like, and I'm 22. And I'm like, you're a brilliant poet and you're 22. But I'm also like, I feel so old because at this point in time, I'm like, yeah, I remember being 22 and feeling things that intensely. And now I'm 30 and I still feel things quite a bit. Like I'm still a young person and oh, like we all have all these yeah. that deeply. Yeah. I mean, I don't really, I mean, I peripherally watch The Bachelor because my girlfriend watches The Bachelor. So I'll be in there watching while she watches. And everyone on the show, is now younger than me and being like, I must find my life partner now (laughs) and everything is so intense. And I'm like, I remember watching this as a kid and being like, these people are totally ready to get married. And now I'm 29 and I'm like, what do you mean you need to settle down and buy a house? Fascinating. The Bachelor is Jane Austen, right? Yeah. It's like they are washed up like Charlotte Lucas at 27. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like it is the Austen age. It's like 19. Gotta get shit going. Right. It's wild. I hadn't thought of that, that the standards of Jane Austen's period actually still apply on the set of The Bachelor. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I mean, it's all everything happens at a party and it's all talking and a lot less like physical interaction to get to know each other so and it, it, it's it's a bit of a meat market in the way that a lot of these parties were in Jane Austen novels yeah. when it was like the season and people were looking for their their partners fascinating somebody has yeah. definitely written this article and I just haven't read it but 100% yes yes and uh listeners give us give us your best bachelor bachelorette Jane Austen content we want to see it yeah so uh to our second question, what is your current favorite piece of Jane Austen's work? I think you may have answered it, but please feel free to elaborate. It doesn't have to be one of her books, but it can be, obviously. Yeah, I um, I um, just because I've already talked about how much I love Northanger, I will put in a strong defense of Mansfield Park, which I just reread for the first time since I was 20. It is not my favorite Austen. It is my least favorite Austen. <laughs> but saying it's my least favorite Austen is being like, this is my least favorite delicious chocolate cake, right? Like it's, and it's just still so good. And I think it, people think of it as skippable, but you know, it's coming off of her writing Pride and Prejudice where she has written like, right. Someone who she says is the most delightful creature who she's ever met in Lizzie Bennett. And so trying to take on writing Fanny Bryce, this like profoundly shy person I just think it's such an interesting writing challenge for herself and then also trying to take on colonialism and trust and power. And I hate Edmund, which I think is why Mansfield Park is actually so hard for me. I like think it is like the least happy ending of all of the happy endings. But I don't I I I was shocked by how much I liked it. And so I think because it is everyone's least favorite Austin, we don't go back and reread it. But it's still better than anything else you'll read. I totally agree. And I think that, I mean, without spoiling anything for Molly at this point on Mansfield, I think even if it's not her most enjoyable read, I think it is one of her more interesting reads to like figure out where she's at and what she's thinking about. And it brings in more than a lot of her other books in terms of like what's going on in the UK at that time. So in that ways, I, I read it for the first time, actually, that one in college. And it was in the context of like talking about what was going on in Britain and how did it feel to people who lived in Britain. And it, like from that perspective, it's a very interesting book. Yeah, absolutely. 
So my girlfriend and I love to go do tasting menus. Ooh. And every time we do a tasting menu, at the end of the menu, we will rank everything that we've eaten. And usually yeah. it's all delicious. Yeah. So we start with the caveat that like the worst of seven really delicious things was. Exactly. That, yeah. that is Mansfield. And I just really do love thinking about it as Austin setting a writing challenge for herself. And the other thing that's so great about Mansfield Park is that it's the closest that Austin comes to being a character because the narrative voice is so strong and really is a character in Mansfield and because Fanny is so silent of a character. And so you do feel like you're spending time with Jane Austen, although we shouldn't say that because obviously it's always a narrative voice and she's, you know, she's so brilliant. But anyway, I it's not my favorite, but I want to put in a, a hard plug for Mansfield Park, everyone. Incredible. I love that. So our third question is, which Austin character would you want to be either best friends and or enemies with? So I, okay, this is so hard. This is so hard. And I, I just feel so basic, but I want to be best friends with Eleanor Dashwood. She is just kind and responsible and she can keep a secret. And she loves very deeply without being like a big hugger. And I think she has so much integrity. And I also think she's 20. She is like a child when we meet her. And so I like would love to live my life alongside her and see who she turns into. Yeah. To be Eleanor Dashwood's support system would be an honor. <laughs> I And she would be right. Like it would be just such a she's so supportive. And I feel like I could be supportive of her and. But yeah, my, my enemy is, an, I. there's no one I hate more than Mrs. Elton. So I'm excited mm. that we're talking about Emma because I just, I hate her so much. I hate her so much. Queen Augusta. What Specifically I, this Augusta. Yeah. Ah! I gotta say, that is so fun because the thing is, like, in terms of villainy in Austin, Mrs. Elton Augusta, if you will, is not like she's not a the villain. most evil. She character. doesn't do anything evil. She's just annoying. No evil machinations. <laughs> she's just so profoundly obnoxious. Yeah, it's so. And good. She's just so high on her own horse for no reason. Lady Catherine de Bourgh, you're like okay, like you're obnoxious, but she. Anyway, it's not even worth getting into. I just hate Augusta <laughs> so much. I find her. And I think the reason that she's so insufferable is that she has Mr. Elton propping her up all the time. Mm -hmm. Whereas Lady Catherine, other people, I mean, Lady Catherine has Collins, obviously, but um, but Darcy condemns her, right? Like other people are like, screw you, Lady Catherine. And you actually see people rebel against other like villains in Austin. Um, Willoughby gets his just desserts to some extent, to, to some extent he marries well. Wickham definitely gets his just desserts, right? But like Mrs. Elton, nothing bad happens to her. She's just annoying forever. The only thing that happens that's bad to her is that she can't patronize Jane anymore. Yeah. Or condescend to her because Jane is above her by the end of the novel, which is very satisfying. But you know, she's just going to find someone new to condescend to. And nobody mocks her. I th right, like I feel like I'm hearing your listeners yell at me, being like, "But Collins doesn't get his just desserts." But we get to see Mr. Bennett laugh at Collins, right? Like we just there is like no emotional, haha, Mrs. El There's no humiliation for Mrs. Elton, and it drives me crazy. Yeah. All right. Our final question, and you may have an answered this one already as well. <laughs> Sorry. Is what is your hottest? No, no. I you can you can give us another. What is your hottest Austin take? Oh God. I mean, my this isn't. I just don't feel like there are a ton of Austin hot takes. But my favorite one to think about is that Charlotte Lucas is in love with Lizzie, mm. and I think you know. I I just think Lizzie and Charlotte are actually in love. That they're both little. I Lizzie is bi and Charlotte is gay and yeah the you know unfortunately the times and so that is my favorite you know head canon is that we just released an entire episode discussing that okay yeah so this is like not a hot take this is a a stone cold take but I'm just very passionate about it it's a steamy take that's true it's yeah. not a hot take but it is a steamy take there it is my glasses are fogging up oh yes <laughs> 
my headcanon for Charlotte Lucas is that ultimately she and Anne Berg come up with a really close gal pal situation that ends up being a love affair while Collins gardens for the rest of their lives. Yeah, no, I love that. I love that. That feels important to me. Yeah. 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 It's crucial. Okay. I think that leads us into talking about our adaptation today, which is a made-for-television film of Emma starring Kate Beckinsale. And Before she fixed her teeth. Yes. It's important to say. Yes. And a Mark Strong who clearly pissed off several costumers. <laughs> Should we start by uh, giving our overall impression opinion of this movie? Absolutely. Vanessa? This is like a solid B Emma adaptation. It has a point of view, which I think is really important. To me, you can measure an Emma adaptation by a few things that I think that this misses. I I really think the emotional through line of Emma is Harriet Smith. You have to feel as though Emma starts by treating Harriet as a doll and ends by respecting Harriet mm-hmm. as a person. And I that is what this film is really missing to me is like yes. Harriet is sort of a non-person, non-character. And yeah, so you just like don't get the emotional punch of like the brutality of Emma. Mm -hmm. But no, like Kate Beckinsale is adorable. Her face is doing great work. I, you know, I find Knightley very sexy and condescending in a hot way. And so it's Mrs. Elton is perfectly obnoxious. Mr. Elton is the right amount of sinister. It does a lot of things well. The the Mm. Harriet is the big mistake to me. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I think that it does certain plot points very well that other Emma adaptations do not do well, like Frank and Jane. You don't think it overly tips its hand to Frank and Jane? I think it I think it does. I think it But it does do more than most. It honors them in a way that most other adaptations didn't find necessary because totally. they were focusing on other storylines and this one didn't focus on those other storylines. Like yes. there is no chemistry for me between Emma and Knightley. And obviously Harriet is unimportant in this one. So uh, I was watching it with our Discord chat and someone said it really well. They said that this movie really took the plot and they hit all the major plot points, but it was just lacking some heart. And yeah. I think for me, that is the case. I, it did grow on me on my second watch through, but it's definitely not my favorite. I mean, that's what the 2008 does so well with uh, Harriet and Emma, like their relationship from the beginning of the miniseries to the end of the miniseries. I haven't seen that one. (gasps) It's quite good. Okay. It's quite good. Thank you. Not to be that person that's like, you must watch this thing that I I love, but it's so good. I absolutely adore Romola Gary. So I'm very excited about that. She's a fellow Hungarian. She's so good. She is, I think, from my perspective, my favorite Emma, she gives Emma a lot more sweetness Mm -hmm. than some of the other Emmas. As far as this adaptation goes, I want to start by saying I do actually think Kate Beckinsale does a pretty good job playing Emma. I like her performance. I think it's fun and sort of girlish, if that makes sense. Yep. I think what this adaptation does right, I enjoyed. I think I agree that I think Harriet was lacking and that's a huge issue. I think Knightley was lacking. That's a huge issue. I really enjoyed certain aspects. It's a little unhinged. I wish it were a miniseries because I think it would have had room to breathe a little better because I was sort of thrown by all the ways it was cut so quickly and then simultaneously a little boring. Yeah. But the things that were chosen to focus on were weird. One thing I did like, and I think this goes to the Frank and Jane plot, which I thought was quite good. And I think it also goes to some of the framing of the story is it is the first Emma adaptation that I've watched that doesn't have as much interest in showing the story from Emma's perspective. Like we are getting the story of Emma, but we're catching the things that she doesn't catch. There's a lot of focus on the servants. There's a lot of focus on the social cues she's missing. We see immediately what happens to Miss Bates after Box Hill. Um, so the the story is not as interested in giving us the same like whiplash that Emma's getting um, throughout the story because it's showing us the entire time that Emma's ignorant. Yeah. Andrea Davies really is focused on the class stuff of it all. 
in ways that I find interesting and then in ways that I find difficult. But we can talk about that when it comes up. Great. Agreed. (laughs) But overall, I think I would put this one at, I think, a B minus ish as well. Um, I think the F parts of it are evened out by some A parts of it. And then the other thing I will say about this is I thought I hadn't seen this adaptation before and I straight up have. You just um, blocked it out of your memory. <laughs> so this it's it's actually really funny because I think I've seen this maybe once. I'd seen the Gwyneth Paltrow a few times and I don't particularly care for that adaptation. But when I was watching it again, this rewatch, I was like, there's things I remember happening in this movie that didn't happen. and when they happened in this one, I was like, oh my God, I, I've i seen this. Like, there's a moment where Kay Beckinsale just goes, you are wrong, Mr. Knightley. You are wrong and you shall see it. And mm. I was like, that I remembered. The piano forte being like risen through the air to be put in the, uh, the Bates apartment is like a core moment in my memory from like childhood. That's so, so interesting. I must have seen this once or twice when I was a little, little kid and just forgotten it. But I did not remember most of it. I also remembered definitely the look of the guy who played Frank Churchill because he's very distinct looking. And I was like, oh, I know that Frank. <laughs> so yeah. overall, it's just just wild and makes it tells you everything you need to know about the movie that I completed it entirely <laughs> with Gwyneth Paltrow yeah. and did not remember that I'd seen it. <laughs> Hello, it's Molly from the future hopping in to tell you about a new season of one of my absolute favorite podcasts. Hot and Bothered, hosted by returning Pod and Prejudice guest Vanessa Zoltan, is a podcast that treats romance as sacred. You've probably all already heard of this podcast because in their fourth season, they covered Pride and Prejudice. And now Hot and Bothered is back with a season that is all about romantic films. The first 10 episodes of this new season follow Vanessa as she learns how to critically watch movies by looking closely at the classic 2003 rom-com How to Lose a Guy in 10 Days. After 10 episodes, Vanessa will be joined by her co-host Hannah McGregor, a media studies scholar, author, and podcaster. And together, they'll look at romantic films from Casablanca to Love and Basketball to When Harry Met Sally. The show is already so fun after just listening to one episode, and I cannot wait to listen to the rest of the season. So subscribe to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts to jump into this new season that's all about romantic films or to enjoy their previous seasons about Pride and Prejudice, Jane Eyre, and a personal favorite, Twilight. Again, that's Hot and Bothered, and it can be found wherever you get your podcasts. Also, this August, Vanessa is leading a pilgrimage to Bath for a five-day trip dedicated to Northanger Abbey. Now, I don't know anything about Northanger Abbey, but even I want to go on this trip. Together, you and 20 other Austinites are delving into the story of Catherine Moreland while immersed in a gorgeous city that features heavily in Austin's life and writing, as you know. So if you enjoy contemplative hikes, immersion in a new city, time away from your regular life, and the chance to talk about Austin with fans from all over the world, which I know all of you do, then this trip is for you. So check out Common Ground Pilgrimages at readingandwalkingwith.com. To claim your spot on the Northanger Abbey trip, head to readingandwalkingwith.com slash northanger-abbey-2024. And now back to this episode. So let's start talking about it. We start out with the chicken thieves, which I am very glad made their way into this movie, not once, but twice. It's so weird because, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more later, but Andrew Davies does a really good job of showing the hypocrisy of the upper class because, right, like there are these scenes where like they're picnicking and doing quote unquote natural things, but the servants are actually doing all of the work and they're right Mm -hmm. there. And so they show the hypocrisy of the rich, but they also make all poor people seem like thieves. Yeah, because the only introduction we get to any poor people in this, aside from the Bateses who have fallen from grace, are the chicken thieves and the Roma people who attack Harriet. Exactly. Oh, yeah. And so I'm just like, why are all, like, this should be an indictment of Hertfordshire that, like, you have such class stratospheres that, like, people are hungry. But Mm -hmm. instead, it's like all poor people are dirty and thieves and it's a weird way to start and end the movie yeah I have no idea why that was the framing device picked like you never know what people are going to latch onto. but the idea that they I have to think that Andrew Davies was like oh the the chicken thief is the reason Emma and Knightley could end up together because Mr. Woodhouse allowed it because of the chicken thief that can That's be our framing what device happens in the no- <laughs> yeah it it actually it's totally unnecessary and so 
minimizing to the way that Austin thought about class. And so I, it like is very confusing to me. Andrew Davies, you nearly perfect man. What were you doing here? Yeah. I mean, this whole thing is kind of that question, right? So after the chicken thieves, we get the Woodhouses in the carriage on the way to Miss Taylor's wedding. And uh, Mr. Woodhouse saying that Miss Taylor should not be getting married. And Emma and Miss Taylor have this kind of almost kiss moment where they kiss, but just on the cheek. But it was I was like, whoa, flirty. And the wedding between Miss Taylor and Mr. Weston, again, Mr. Weston is always the sexiest man in any Emma adaptation. (laughs) (laughs) I liked that this one made him look old. It did make him look old, but with a very handsome face. Oh, my God. He's so handsome and so lovely. But I was just like, yes, that he is an old man. And I, I do like that this actually acknowledge that. And Miss Taylor was a little bit older, too, yes. than she has been in other adaptations. Which, it, it one of my favorite lines about Austin is, um, and I don't remember who said this, but one academic said there is no sex in Austin, and another academic answered, that's not true. Miss Taylor ends up as Mrs. Weston, and she ends up pregnant at the end of the novel. Of course, there's sex in Austin. Yes. And I'm just like, there was no baby. But yes, I like that they make them all older. And Mrs. Weston, Miss Taylor was this like mother figure to Emma. Mm, It's very well done. That's a a good point for us to note for our live show in March, because we're going to be discussing sex and steaminess in Austin and where it's implied and um, Uh, and where it is absolutely not. It's definitely implied between Mrs. and Mr. Weston. Mm -hmm. There's a baby. Yeah. Not to mention the Palmers and all that that bickering that happens in Sense and Sensibility. John and Isabella (laughs) have like 12 kids. John and Isabella get it on all the time. All the time. They are definitely one of the sexier couples. Yes. Sometimes neurotic people need to like let off steam and Isabella is extremely neurotic in the novel. I can see it. Yeah. I can see it. Yeah. Oh my God. Absolutely. She She's a lot of kink in her. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so then we get this montage of Mr. Woodhouse being sad around the house that Miss Taylor is gone and Enter Mr. Knightley. Okay. <laughs> who I, I did appreciate he greeted the servant on his way in. He was like, Thomas, how are you? And he's the only person who ever acknowledges any servants. Yes. So Mr. Knightley, Becca visibly sighed when I said he entered and not in a good way. So first of all, I do want to note, I do agree that there is a real effort to show Knightley as very kind to people of the lower classes in this. And that's nice and everything. I love Mark Strong, who plays Mr. Knightley in this. Yeah. I think he's talented. I think he's fun. I think he's handsome as hell. Like nowadays he is daddy. Like he's rocking the like strong brow, bald head glasses look like, especially in Kingsman as Merlin. But Someone doesn't like him who costumed him in this movie because they give him that like that side part that just does not look perfect on his head. Um, And he is like layered to hell with like this ass cut. And you can barely see like you're every time he got a glance of like emotion in his beautiful green eyes. I was like, Mark Strong, you're so handsome. Who did this to you? What's happening? I totally disagree. Mr. Knightley oh totally God, really? does it for me in this. I like I love Mr. Knightley. So I like Henry Tilney and Mr. Knightley are obviously the two best awesome oh, yeah. heroes to me on the page. And yeah, so I'm like predisposed to liking him. But I thought that the way that he scolds Emma in this movie is like very interesting and threads the needle to me of like, I am in love with you. Please be the person who I know you are, right? Like he is rooting for her. And so I don't know. Yeah, Mm. he totally did it for me in this movie. Interesting. See, when he scolds her in this movie for me, and and again, I'll quote one of our patrons on this. They said he's giving less daddy and more dad. Like he was being there. To me, there wasn't a lot of chemistry there and it wasn't um, I am kind of into you be the person I want you to be. It was like, your dad's not scolding you, so I'm going to. Hmm. And uh, he is so hot. And I wish that he was just less angry in this movie. There are moments where he softens and then you see it. But he hates Frank Churchill in this movie. 
the frame of this movie is the chicken thieves, but it's also Frank Churchill, which maybe that's what Andrew Davies was up to. That mm-hmm. Frank Churchill is essentially a chicken thief. He <laughs> like the frame of this movie, like it begins and ends sort of with Frank Churchill and like coming to town and leaving town or like, with his ending. And he hates Frank. He hates Frank. And so of course he's angry the whole time. This this like scoundrel, this chicken thief has come into his coop. I love that. I know. I, I don't think that's what Davies was up to, but let's say it was. You know, art can be interpreted by the audience as ever it must be. I, I fall somewhere between the two of you on this because I think that Mark Strong has some really strong moments as Knightley in this. And I think he has some weak moments in that, as Knightley in this. I just take issue with the way he was styled. I think he's a very handsome man and that they did him dirty in the costume department. But his eyes are doing a lot. His eyes are doing so much. Gorgeous eyes and like a strong face. Like, and that feels great. But the way they style his hair, just like it feels so cruel. I I know it's probably Regency era accurate, but there are a lot of liberties taken with the way that Austin heroes wear their hair. And I also, Vanessa, agree, Mr. Knightley is one of Jane Austen's most crushable men. The pinnacle. For sure. Absolutely. Yeah. But I, I just, I'm like, why would they do this? Especially because Frank Churchill is like really pretty boy in this one. But that's why you have to do it because Mr. <laughs> Knightley is jealous of Frank Churchill. True. I know. And I, I'm partial to, um, and we'll, we'll have to get you into the 2009 BBC miniseries. I can't wait. But Johnny Lee Miller plays Knightley and he's got the short hair and it's just like, it's so like straightforward, no nonsense. He looks great. And I'm like, I know it's probably not period accurate, but I'm fine with that. I'm hesitant to call anything period accurate or not period accurate because we're always wrong. Our listeners always <laughs> email us and they're like, wait a minute, this movie's actually the most period accurate and this one's not. Oh, we got we got absolutely creamed for saying the Emma 2020 costumes took liberties. They were like, actually, those are vintage pieces from Regency era. Well, so good for them. Good for them. Yeah. Yep. So Emma starts hatching a plan to marry off Mr. Elton and she's in church and her eyes land upon Harriet because the light is streaming in on this angelic figure. And we kind of hear Harriet's background from Mrs. Goddard. They're talking and watching Harriet with the young girls. And we see Harriet talking to Robert Martin. And I have a fun fact about Robert Martin. I know exactly what your fun fact is. And it's so cool. So good. Now, in the 2020 Emma The Robert Martin is in sex education. Yes. This Robert Martin is also in sex education as that Robert Martin's dad. Oh, my God. So I am obsessed with the casting of I like want to call my husband over because we watch (laughs) sex education and we're like, these two men are actually related. These two men are actually related and they're not. I cannot wait to tell him this guys they're like related in such a a, an important way more important than biology yes Yes. (laughs) yeah he's adam's dad in sex education this is incredible and then adam plays this is a thing thank you i just can't thank you enough for this information yes i will remember it on my deathbed seriously (laughs) because they look the same too like this one's just a blonde version of that one yeah, oh. no, they they are perfectly cast on set. I just, okay, I'm sorry, I'm gonna stop. I just <laughs> you've blown my mind, and I'm so happy. Quite honestly, I I'm sad because I know that the reason Molly knows this is that Mel pointed it out. No, no, who- no, no. One of our listeners pointed it out, and oh. I pointed it out to Mel, and she was shocked. Okay, well, I was gonna say I hoped you had come to that conclusion on your own, like I did. But I don't watch that show. I know, but. We'll get there. It'll be fun. I will. I will. I'll watch it just for them. They are fantastic in it. And their relationship has the most interesting arc over the seasons. I 100% agree. It's like they are one of the highlights of that show. Robert Martin and Robert Martin have a very interesting relationship. In <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So we get a scene of tea at Hartfield with Harriet, the Bates's Mr. Perry. And there's a conversation about nightly giving all of his eggs to the Bateses, which is a conversation that happens in the book later on with apples. Yeah. And I thought it was foreshadowing. And then the apple conversation never happened. But eggs, it's interesting. I'm actually thinking Andrew Davies did this like 
Frank Churchill chicken thief thing on purpose. Because <gasps> Knightley gives eggs, whereas Frank Churchill, Frank Churchill like them. metaphorically steals chickens, right? Wow. You guys, I really think we've cracked a code on this. We've, we've cracked, cracked an, an egg, egg open then. Yes. So Emma is telling Harriet that she couldn't care less about the Martins. And Harriet should be careful who she befriends. And this has very much the energy of, I think I can tell the wrong sort myself, thanks. But Harriet doesn't say that, of course, because it's Harriet Smith. I will say one of the big framing devices that varies with this adaptation and is, I think, a very bad choice is that usually you get Harriet Smith as an introduction after Emma's feeling lonely with the loss of Miss Taylor. Yep. Here, it's because she's come off the triumph of setting up Mr. and Mrs. Weston and is looking to set up Mr. Elton and sees Harriet as a viable option for that specific goal. I like it better when she's like, I'm lonely. Who can I have in my life? Mm. And she comes up with Harriet Smith and is like, ooh, let's make her a companion worthy of me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that that made me sad a little bit in this adaptation. Yeah. I think that they underplay the relationship between Emma and Harriet as well as Emma and Miss Taylor slash Mrs. Weston. Like, that isn't given enough weight. This movie really is, yeah, it's not interested in what I think is the most character-defining thing about Emma, right? Like, the three big things that we are, like, led to judge Emma on is how she treats Miss Bates, how she treats Jane Fairfax, and how she treats Harriet Smith, right? Like, how she treats her, quote-unquote, lessers. And this film is not interested in that. And I don't know who Emma is without us watching her figure out that she has actually treated all three of these women incorrectly and that like she therefore needs to try to be a better person. And so, I mean, we'll talk about the ending. I think the ending does some work to repair that. But like Samantha Morton doing the most with so little in this movie. And it I think it totally misses the point of Emma's character development. Absolutely. I was going to say, I think the thing is, it's it's clear from a writing and directing standpoint, that's the flaw. Because I think, like, if you look at, like, Kate Beckinsale, Mark Strong, and Samantha Morton, top-tier actors actually doing, I think, a great job to give justice to these characters, but not working with enough to really, like, punch home. Like, I like... Kate Beckinsale's like take on Emma. I find her less grating than Gwyneth Paltrow's Emma. But you're right. You don't get that internal monologue and that like sense of whimsy and blunder that you get with some other Emmas. I have to disagree. I don't like Kate Beckinsale in this movie. I How think, dare you? I know. I'm so <laughs> sorry. But she, to me, isn't doing a whole lot. Like her reactions to things are all very similar like she furrows her brow I totally that's disagree. that's my take on it I know I there's know there's a dance scene where depending on who she's currently holding hands with her face is totally different that's she's like really I'm good happy scene. to see you I'm annoyed to see you her face is doing the most it's subtle it's subtle which is impressive I think Kate Beckinsale is fantastic in this I am hot off of watching her in love and friendship where she is mm perfect as Lady Susan. So I think I am like positively predisposed to liking Kate Beckinsale in Austin adaptations. Mm -hmm. But I think she is like 12 in this movie and is doing is her forehead. There's like never been anything you could like flip a quarter on her forehead in this movie. (laughs) And I, I think she's fantastic in it. I really do. I think that it's I think Emma is poorly written as a character in this. Yes. But I think that she is doing the most with very little. I think I'm probably biased coming off of the 2008 Emma. And that's... And you, we, we can... Reasonable people can disagree about where the yes, fault lies. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. I think... And I think that the that we have been blessed in, like, the last, like, decade, 15 years with, like, really, really excellent performances of Emma. I think Anya Taylor-Joy is also very good as Emma. Totally. But I do think that Kate Beckinsale was bringing something fun and cool to the role. So... Hmm, reasonable minds disagree. Mm-hmm. The only M I really take issue with is Gwyneth. I really don't like Gwyneth's performance. I haven't <laughs> rewatched that in so long. I need to. I was delighted by it when I saw it at the time. Yeah, I liked it. I It's not my favorite, but it's a perfectly serviceable adaptation of Emma, in my opinion. I wouldn't watch it again, but I also wouldn't watch this one again. I would just watch the 2008 right. over and over <laughs> again and then sprinkle in the 2020 there at some points. So... 2009, by the way. It's 2009? Wow. It's 2008 in England and 2009 in the U.S. You're both (laughs) right. 
I have the Wikipedia article up. Oh my god, thank God. I was like, I've been saying this for about half an hour. No, 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 no. You're both right. You. Okay. So Elton brings Harriet some apple tart and Emma has a slow motion vision of them at their wedding. And they both turn and stare directly into the camera, thanking Emma profusely for matching them up. And Emma's like, hmm. Stranger things have happened. So this to me is like the hardest part of any Austin adaptation is how are you going to get across the narrative voice? And my complaint about this, Emma, is that it does it in too many different ways. It does it through Emma's dreams. Emma has these like declarations sometimes. Oh, no, poor Harriet. And then in, in this moment, she has this like fantasy and it needs to like pick a device for that. The Felicity Jones, Northanger Abbey, which I think is a fantastic adaptation. Like it's just Felicity Jones has these daydreams and like that's it. Like they're half daydreams, half half dreams. But like I understand that it is so hard because Austin's narrative voice with the free and direct discourse is a character in all of the novels and you need to figure out how to represent it. But I do not think that this movie does that well at all. Agreed. This this was the moment when uh, my fiance turned to me and went, did David Lynch do this? Yeah. No, it's weird. It's not well done. Yeah. Yeah. That was also my problem with the Gwyneth Emma is that it was just there was no consistency with how they were transitioning from scene to scene, how she was determining how she felt. Interesting. Yeah. So. Emma and Harriet are now walking in the woods and Emma tells Harriet that she plans never to marry. She's never going to fall in love. And at this moment, they see Robert Martin and Emma snubs him as she does. She's like, I'll wait for you. And she walks past him without saying hello. But they don't give her the best line about Robert Martin, which is he's just as much above my notice as he is beneath my notice. It's right. such a perfect line. Why not give that? Like Austin did that for you, Davies. Yeah. There's a lot of things that Austin did that they were like, meh. I know. I think I can write it better. <laughs> what are you doing? I will say I am happy and we'll get to this, but I am happy they did not mess with if I loved you last time, I might be able to talk about well, it more. You can't. We would have to. I Well, obviously, it's not in the Gwyneth version. I know yeah, this. Yeah. Even though I haven't seen the Gwyneth version in forever, I actually, I feel like that is just in the ether. I just like, I know that. Yeah. But yes, Andrew Davies, not a monster. Yes. So Emma tells Harriet that she should think of real gentlemen and starts to plant the idea of Mr. Elton. She's like, think of Mr. Elton. And as they walk away, it dawns on me that they're wearing the same outfit. They're wearing like this green dress with the lacy collar thing coming out of it. And I think that most Emma adaptations sort of start doing that closer towards the end with Emma and Harriet wearing similar outfits. But it starts out with them wearing similar outfits in this one, which I thought was interesting. Then we get Emma taking Harriet's likeness. And this is the only adaptation where Harriet is not posed in some ridiculous Greek statue yeah. holding a vase thing. She's just sitting reading a book, which I think is lovely. And Emma's drawings look like the Pixar Animation Studios drawings. Like she's drawing a Disney princess and... It is very out of keeping with like what I imagine Regency era drawings to look like. Like they just don't look like what I've seen. I mean, people draw however they draw always, but this looks like a Disney princess. I mean, it's interesting in a film what you're going to try to show with the drawing, right? Because you yes. want to simultaneously show Emma's lack of skill, right? You want to show that Emma had the best teachers, but no determination, right? And no will to practice. Mm -hmm. And so she is technically sound, but not inspired. But she also has an agenda, which is to make Harriet look as good as possible for Mr. Elton. And so this is a prop that has like a lot of responsibility in it. Yeah, that's true. And when Mrs. Weston and Mr. Knightley see it, they are both like giving her shit for it. Mrs. Weston is like, um, doesn't really look like her eyebrows. And Mr. Knightley famously says, you've made her too tall. And Mr. Elton is just loving it. And as he's gassing Emma up, there's this moment where Mrs. Weston and Mr. Knightley like look at each other, like they're noticing what's happening here. And Emma is just not at all noticing. I think the Elton, we've talked about before how Elton's like obvious and loving Emma. But I think in this one, they there's so many determined choices to make us know that everybody else sees that Elton wants Emma. 
And so it, you really are not living in the same world as Emma where she thinks, oh, he and Harriet are a good match. You are seeing that he wants Emma immediately. Yes. And it also, I love whenever a film matches up Mr. Knightley and Mrs. Weston because it speaks to the creepiness that Mr. Knightley is a father figure to Emma because Mrs. Weston is obviously a mother figure. Mr. Woodhouse is useless as a father. He's actually a child. And mm-hmm. so anytime it can be pointed out that Emma's actual parents are Mr. Knightley and Mrs. Weston, I think it's apt. The way that this movie, we'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> yeah. But there's a, there's a lot. But this is the first sign of it, right? This yes, is the first, absolutely. the two of them bent heads. Yes. Yes. So as Elton rides off to London, Harriet comes running up with her proposal from Robert Martin. I wanted to give a quick shout out to Emma's very cool sleeves in this scene. They're like cross hatch cap sleeve situation that I love. And Harriet looks absolutely devastated when Emma implies that she should say no to the proposal. And in my opinion, Emma looks very put out by this whole thing. She looks very fed up. She's like, I cannot believe that you are entertaining the idea of saying yes to this. Imagine you're working on a project for weeks and somebody comes in and is like, do you know what? I totally did this other thing. Well, you would also be annoyed. Fair enough. That's fair. <laughs> I, well, nobody gave Emma this assignment. It is the wrong assignment that she is working on. But from her point of view, she's been working on something and Harriet's coming in and not appreciating all the work Emma has been doing. Mm-hmm. That's true. And Emma says, well, I'm very relieved when Harriet decides that she's going to say no. Emma's like, I'm very relieved. I could not have visited Mrs. Martin of Abbey Mill Farm. And Harriet, as they're walking away and Emma looks so smug, Harriet just looks absolutely devastated. Yeah, I I miss some of the precocious sort of bubbly, fun, ditzy energy that a lot of Harriet's bring to the role. And that's not Samantha Morton's fault. She's just playing it very straight, straightforward and almost sad. Mm. And it, it kind of takes some of the comedy out, some of the zing and pop. Yeah, but I do think it's very true to Harriet in the book. Yes. I think that she takes what Emma dishes out to heart. And I can really see like the gears turning in her head and see her internalizing everything that Emma is saying to her. And imagine, right, like you are... So lonely, right? Like the Martins are like the only people who've ever really taken her in and been nice to her. And the coolest girl in town suddenly wants to be your best friend. And Mm -hmm. she essentially has to choose between like the only two groups of people who have ever treated her as an individual rather than as a student, right? Like this is, this is heartbreaking for Harriet. Yeah. So Knightley finds out, and he is pissed. Rightly so. Rightly he so. He meant Knightley in this yes. moment. Yes. And I like that they end his spiel with him telling her it was badly done, because I we know. get that good Oof. foreshadow of badly done indeed. Then we get the arrival of John and Isabella. Winter. It's winter time. John is so hot. Hot. And, hot. okay, but I have to tell you guys something that I discovered. I don't know if you're into Star Wars at all, but... He plays Governor Tarkin in Rogue One. Yes. To me, that's a revelation. (laughs) Oh, no, no. I figured that out. Guys, that's it. And it's (laughs) everything. He also plays Thickness in uh, Harry Potter. Not so hot there. (laughs) To me, I mean, Governor Tarkin. Anyway, I won't get into it. But I was just like, (laughs) whoa, whoa. Because I thought Governor Tarkin was CGI generated in Rogue One because he looks so much like Governor Tarkin in episode four of Star Wars. But he 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 is. But he's like mixed. Oh, okay. Like, yeah. So so like it's like um, how Darth Vader was played by James Earl Jones, but obviously somebody else as well. I see. Like, so he's he's Governor Tarkin, but it's not like just his face. Okay, well, Governor Tarkin. He's hot in this. He's hot in yes. that too. I guess we can admit. But he's just confusing in this. Like, it. He's so fun when John is an asshole in the yes. novel. Yes. And in this, he like starts out adorable and fun, and then becomes an asshole. Yeah. They needed to pick. Yeah, pick a lane on John. Yeah. He's like throwing the kids around and kissing them and it's like very like involved dad. And then he's like grumpy and is like, I can't believe we're going out in this weather. I don't know. I found the per- I agree with you, John, beautiful man, whoever is acting. But like I I found Agreed. this portrayal confusing at best. Yes, I think they need to pick a lane. I think that each adaptation has picked a different lane and each one is lovely in its own way. 
So Emma is holding baby Emma and Knightley comes over and says that he remembers holding her like that once. Okay. <laughs> okay. okay. Once again, I father. Yeah. They really, they really want you to know how much Knightley was involved in Emma's childhood, which just seems like an odd thing to highlight for a modern adaptation. Including it's the last line of the movie, right? I mean, we'll get there. Sorry. Oh, I literally I, I can't even I was cr- cringing and I don't want to be cringing during that scene but it, he must be doing it on purpose right like he was changing her diapers <laughs> I know but I you just got to think that there's something like smart about Austin's understanding of people right like again Emma essentially was parentless and so of course she wants to marry like quote unquote her dad I don't like it's interesting that That's this true. movie doesn't shy away from it. It ruins the hotness of it, but yeah. <laughs> it does it it is interesting and it's absolutely in the novel. Yeah. Yeah, no it is. It is. So, Christmas Eve. It's time for the party at the Weston's house and John is complaining the whole way about the snow. They pick up Mr. Elton and he is like this is the best thing ever, which is a very fun contrast. We learn that Harriet's unable to come because she has a sore throat and Frank is unable to come for undisclosed reasons. And then Mr. Weston tells the story of Frank. And during the story of Frank, Elton is staring at Emma and she like kind of notices him staring at her and looks a little put out by it. I actually think this Elton is fucking serving. I think he's so funny. I do too. <laughs> he's hilarious. I he's love hilarious. Him. And then in the carriage, he's scary. Disgusting. It's yeah. perfect. Oh, yeah. 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 They show Emma a painting of Frank Churchill, and she loudly announces to the entire room that if she were ever to marry, it would probably be to Frank Churchill. And Knightley is salty immediately. He's like, well, if he wanted to come, he would come. And they start arguing about him. But then the Frank Churchill portraits comes to life. Yes. Like a Harry Potter character and like winks at Emma. And again, I'm just like, pick a lane on this shit, guys. Right. You can't have it all. He like comes out, kisses her hand. Yeah. It's just very odd. It's like the whole scene is geared to show us that Emma's kind of into Frank Churchill, including the line where Knightley says the the line to Mrs. Weston. Um, I, I'm going to butcher the quote, but it's like, I would like to see her out of love and unsure in love and unsure of its return. Like, yeah. that's that's obviously like a quoting line, but where they put it in context of the story tells me how much they're focused on the Frank Churchill plot in this movie. But I've always thought that was an odd thing to say and where they placed it is even more odd because he's so obviously grumpy about Emma and Frank. And it's just like, if you're going to be so obvious about it, then you also should know at that point how you feel. I think that the film is arguing that he knows the whole time. Mm. I think in this version, he's in love with her the whole time. That would be, I, I'd like to watch it again. If I were to watch it again, I'd watch it again looking for that. that yeah, I, I don't think it is like well handled, but I agree. In yeah. this scene, you see it in particular. And then just how much he hates Frank, right? Like yeah. the more Emma shows interest in Frank, the more he hates yeah. Frank. So unfortunately, now we're at the um, the carriage scene. And... Emma and Elton get in their carriage and he grabs her hands. He tries to kiss them and she pulls away and he comes over and says, forgive me, I can't help myself, which is horrendous. Um, He even tries to kiss her and she like moves out of the way. And when she says that she has no thoughts of matrimony at present, he scoffs like he goes. So the whole thing is just very uncomfortable and dangerous. Though I will say they don't go to the extent that some of the adaptations go to. Like he at least finishes out the carriage ride like he does in the book and gets out and says good night. And then that's the end of it. Still like kind of holding himself to some of the standards of society at the time. I will say he in this scene says I think the actual snobbiest thing that gets said in the whole film, which Mm. is like. I, Harriet Smith, like she is completely beneath me. I would think that I would have, you know, h- higher opinion of myself than to marry Harriet Smith. And this, mm-hmm. this is a novel and a film about snobbishness and how like wrong it is. And so I think that Mr. Elton, this is, is to a large extent Austin's only novel without a villain. And so this, I think, posits Mr. Elton as 
a villain. We can talk about whether or not Frank Churchill is a villain later. Yes. Oh, it's my favorite conversation to have. <laughs> it is such an interesting question. Yeah. <laughs> so that brings us to the end of this episode of Pod and Prejudice. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us. This is the most fun. Thank you so much for having me. I just like can't even contain my thoughts. I'm sorry. I'm talking too much, but I am just delighted. No, we love it. No such thing. <laughs> uh, but do you want to tell the people where they can find you real quick? Yes, uh, you can find us on Instagram at uh, all of the things. But follow me and then you'll be able to follow everything we do. Vanessa M. Zoltan on Instagram. Amazing. Incredible. Listeners, for next week, as you can assume, we're going to finish up our coverage of this Kate Beckinsale TV movie version of Emma. So prep for that. So until next time, stay proper. And remind your crush that you held her as a baby. Oh, my God. Or don't. I don't know. <laughs> do. It's hot, apparently. <laughs> it apparently works. Pod and Prejudice is edited by Molly Burdick and audio produced by Graham Cook. Our show art is designed by Torrance Brown. Our show is transcribed by Speech Docs Podcast Transcription. For transcripts and to learn more about our team, check out our website at podandprejudice.com. To keep up with the show, you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pod and Prejudice. If you love what you hear, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash podandprejudice to see how you can support us or just drop us a rating and a review wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.